Today's scripture reading is James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So for whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Church, good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Reed Capel. I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here. And if you're new, if you're a guest, we're glad uh, you're with us. If you're joining us online, it is a joy to worship with you. Uh, I want to pray for our time as we, as we turn to our text in the book of James. And so let's take a moment to pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you in this time with a wide range of, of burdens, of challenges, of joys and aspirations. As we, as we gather in this time together, in this space or in our homes, there is a great deal of things that, that occupy our attention. And so, Lord, I ask that in this time you would fix our minds, our hearts, our wills upon you so that you would form us and shape us by the power of your word. May your spirit bring conviction and clarity, comfort and challenge in this time so that we might more effectively, fruitfully, and consistently live as image bearers who reflect the beauty of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope in life and death. It is in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Do you ever feel bad for things you can't control? These are, these are words that a, a 15-year-old sister of ours in our church family shared with her mom uh, on the way home from school. And this very wise and insightful question launched into this conversation where they were honestly able to deal with the tensions of our desire for control and, and how often we don't have it and, and the challenges that that produces. Church, do you ever feel bad for things you can't control? Y'all should be amening up in this place. Like, we, we, all, we all recognize how there are so many things in our life that we do not control, and we feel a great deal of turmoil and tension around it. Because the amount of things in our life that we are actually in control of, you could put on a post-it note, and there's still room for your grocery list. There is so little in our lives that we actually control. And if you need further convincing of this, look no further than your task list or your calendar from last week or last month, or last year for crying out loud. How many of the things, I mean, just truly, like look at your calendar. How many of the things last week or last month that you planned to do did you actually get done? And how many of the things that you actually got done were things that you weren't planning to do? This is so true of our lives and schedules. And here, here's an example from my life. So uh, about three weeks ago, I started a, a bathroom remodel project for our kids' bathroom, and, and I told Megan, my wife, that I would be done in a month. And this is where the congregation laughs at their naive pastor, okay? And so here's a picture of, of my first weekend. So I gutted it. I got it all prepped and ready. And so, so it was ready to go. And then three weeks later, here's a picture of my progress. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. There it is. Yeah. That's the same picture, people. 
because I have done nothing. I had, I had such aspirations of getting this done. I had plans, and it just never comes to fruition. Again, we are so, it is so true that we are, there's very little that we are in control of in our lives. And in some ways, that's actually a good thing. Like, I, would, I would actually say that this reality that we are not in control is good for our spiritual formation. It's good for our emotional health, learning that we aren't in control. And as we turn to James, uh, what I want us to consider and suggest for us from his timely and timeless word is this, that real faith is prepared for what we can't control. Real faith is prepared for what we can't control, which is a lot of things. And so if if you're new, if you're a guest with us, we've been exploring the New Testament book of James uh, and seeing what real faith really is. And today we look to this uh, relationship between our faith and the Lord Jesus and our plans. And James begins in chapter four by speaking to people who by all accounts possess a control and a power to be very confident in their planning. Look with me at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, James, he's speaking to people who have a firm belief that their plans are impervious to any kind of disruption or alteration of any kind. There is this kind of inflated confidence in their planning, in their timing, um, in their traveling, in their acquiring. And there's no sense in which they think these plans will be altered. Now, while, while people, and, and he's referencing people who are kind of in the field of business and trade, and there's nothing inherently wrong. James isn't pointing out that that's a wrong field to be in. But rather, what he's pointing out is how wealth in particular, and we'll look at this more next week, but how wealth can create this illusion of control. This, this idea that we actually are in more control of our lives than we realize Sin takes place in our lives as it pertains to our wealth when we boast in it, bank on it, and cling to it. And then it produces a sense of of a false understanding of control. And we are most tempted to fall into the trap of control when we feel as though all of our plans come together. But, but so many of us know the reality of our plans falling apart. I mean, especially people who are in business. Think about this last year, the last 18 months. How many plans, projects... How many investments and ventures did we put to rest or, or were put on hold because of the pandemic? We all know this reality that our plans are predicated on so many things outside of our control. But real faith prepares us for what we can't control. Because none of us, no matter the amount of power or influence we might have, none of us knows what tomorrow will bring. And that's precisely where James goes next in verse 14. So you see this contrasting statement, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So, So you feel the tension that James is trying to show in this text, the tension that exists between our overly confident planning, which isn't a necessarily bad thing to plan. Hear me, that's not a bad thing. But he's pointing out the tension of our overly confident plans and our limited, finite power. James wants us to feel this tension, for when we make our plans with such boastful arrogance, which is what James refers to later, it ends up being a way where we functionally believe that we're God. And, and we would never say that. No, no one ever says, like, as they're making, making their plans and setting up a, a strategy for the next quarter, or the next year, or whatever it may be, no one believes that they're God. 
But functionally, that's what happens because when our plans fall apart, when the things that we've strategized and expected don't come to fruition, we get frustrated, disappointed, we get bitter and angry because in that moment we face the harsh reality that we are not God and we are not in control. And yet we have this expectation, this underlying assumption that we are, even though we would never say it out loud. And this is why James, in, in his very, very wise but very bold way, says we are just missed. We're this fleeting, insignificant thing that vanishes. And, and, and James is not trying to like beat us up and kind of show how humans are worthless and have no value, but in, in comparison to the incomparable sovereignty of God, we are a mist, a vapor. And this is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament wisdom literature and in the Psalms, you see this theme of God's sovereignty, of his reign and rule, and how we as humans are creatures, we are just mists, we are vapors. If you want to, uh, Psalm 39 is a beautiful picture of this. Psalm 39 verses 4 and 7, the psalmist says this, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And so you see that, that even though, I mean, so again, James and, and the other biblical authors, they're, they're not trying to just beat up humanity, but rather to try to show how in comparison to the reign of God, in the grand scheme of things, God's plan is more important than our own. And, and actually, again, he's not trying to minimize our worth and value or the significance of life. In fact, on the contrary, there is a paradoxical correlation between our understanding of how significant life is and understanding how insignificant we are in the grand scheme of time, which doesn't seem to match up. But the more we understand how limited we are, the more it actually frees us to enjoy the life that God has given us, which is why the psalmist says in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach me to know my number of days that I might have a heart of wisdom. There is something about knowing, this humbling practice of knowing that we all have an expiration date stamped on our heel. Knowing that there is an end of our days, knowing that no one is promised tomorrow, reflecting on such things is not a morbid practice, but it is actually a pathway to faith and wisdom. And while very few of us like reflecting on such things, it is in these moments where we gain wisdom. Real faith prepares us for what we can't control, which again is a lot of things. And so James offers a picture for us, then, of what, what is the contrast. So, so we shouldn't be these people who have this kind of overly confident, boastful, arrogant perspective of our plans and power. What is the proper perspective? What does real faith look like in accordance with our plans? And James shows us that it is nothing less than a full surrender to the infinitely wise good will of God. Look at verse 15. So you see it begins with the word instead, and so you see this clear contrast. Like, so the, the, what we've just heard before is not how we are to embrace our plans and look at life. But James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, to be clear, James is not forbidding planning. 
He, he is not pitting our, our plans and our desire to be responsible and to have foresight and to be thinking ahead. He's not pitting that up against a trust in the will of God or of what real faith is. What, what, what instead I think James is showing us is that when we understand God's sovereignty, it brings about a real faith that reframes the way in which we look at our plans and particularly how close and tight we hold to the outcomes of those plans. Now, now some of us might be thinking, okay, so all we really need to do then as good believers of Jesus is to just add the phrase, if the Lord wills, at the end of every sentence and every email and text and tweet. And, and that's not necessarily what James is suggesting, uh, but that is sometimes how we tend to think. It's, it's just kind of adding a little platitude. And I, I remember as a kid when my brother Aaron and I would spend the night at my grandma's house, I, I loved my grandma so fiercely, just a wonderful woman. And I remember we would sleep in the basement and, and she would say goodnight to us at the top of the stairs. She, say, she would say, good night, boys. I love you. I'll see you in the morning if it's the Lord's will. And then turn the light off. Which, like, as a kid, I, I never computed what I, like, what I heard was just like, blah, 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 God bless you. But as I reflected on it, I was like, that's kind of morbid and creepy, Grandma. It's good theology, but just kind of creepy, you know? And, and so, so, again, the remedy isn't to just add kind of hollow platitudes uh, to our religious rhetoric. That's not the picture. It, it, a real faith that prepares for what we can't control, it's, it's not seen in this kind of hollow, let go and let God kind of perspective. But neither is it a life of constant questioning and wondering if God is going to show up and, and be faithful. Is he actually going to meet my needs? Does he actually have my best interests at heart? A real faith prepares us for what we can't control. I, I think rather than kind of living with this kind of uncertainty about what the future is or, or this, this kind of uh, toxicity of being so certain in our plans, I think the posture we should embrace is one that, that uh, John Mark Comer, he's a pastor in, in Portland, Oregon, he refers to as holy uncertainty. And then this is a term that he's actually borrowed from, from early in church history, uh, but he wrote a, a small ebook early on during the pandemic with this title, Holy Uncertainty. And he, and he says this, holy uncertainty is the capacity to live with a very loose grip, or no grip at all, on our plans, and more important, on the outcomes of our plans. Because our security is rooted in a relational connection to God, not in a false sense of control. Apprentices of Jesus or followers of Jesus who develop this capacity for holy uncertainty, they still make plans, but they are free at an emotional level from the need for those plans to come to pass. That's, that is real faith. That is the picture of, of being prepared for what we can't control. It is not a let go and let God. It is not a passivity. It is not suspending responsibility and planning. But it is believing that we, 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 we make our plans, we, we entrust them to God, we get to work, and we expect change. That, that, that's the narrative of the Christian life. We make our plans, we trust God, we get to work, and we expect change. Real faith that is prepared for what we can't control basically says it doesn't mean that we don't plan. It means that we hold to Jesus more tightly than we do to our plans. Amen? That, that's the picture of real faith. We hold to Jesus more tightly than we do our own plans. It means that we have made, made peace with the fact that we may not get what we want, that things may not turn out exactly how we expected and we are at peace with that because we know that we are at peace knowing that God loves us and is for us 
and is working out all things for our good. But my goodness, is that hard to do. It's good theology, and I understand that, but like living this out faithfully and consistently is a difficult thing. It's hard for, it's hard for religious people and non-religious people because we are so obsessed with control. We want to be the, the captains of our fate. We want to be the ones who are in control of what is going to come to pass. In, in non-religious settings, you, you have this growing phenomenon uh, of the term manifesting. Maybe you're familiar with this term manifesting. If you're not, manifesting is this kind of growing popular trend, this, this belief that we possess the, the ability to have aspirational thoughts and to think them with such conviction and clarity that they will come to fruition. That, that if we focus enough energy that the universe will bring into reality the things that I believe and aspire to accomplish. It, it's essentially just the, the, the perverted distortion of the gospel known as the prosperity gospel, the, the name it and claim it kind of theology. Manifesting is really just borrowing from the heresies of Christianity. That's what they're doing. But, but, but in Christian circles, so we have our same kind of distortion and desire for control in the prosperity gospel. Which again, if you're not familiar with that, it's this, this belief of, yeah, name it and claim it. It's, it's based on this belief that the Christian faith, a pernicious and poisonous belief, I might add, that the Christian faith is really rooted in God's promise and desire to make us healthy and wealthy. That that is the end goal that God has for us. It's this false belief that God is the one who is whispering in our hearts, in our minds, saying, you can have it, you deserve it, you will accomplish it. It's a belief that says the Christian life is void of suffering and hardship and pain. The prosperity gospel, it essentially equates the American dream of comfort and control and cash with the idea of what it means to live the blessed life as Jesus describes for us. Both manifesting kind of in the secular realm and and the prosperity gospel in the religious realm, are both founded upon deluded principles and a desire for control. Behind them both is the belief that we possess control and agency to, and harness the power to bring about what we desire. At least manifesting doesn't drag the name of Jesus through the mud. Both of them are rooted in false, deluded principles. Dr. Kate Bowler, she's a Christian historian, has written extensively actually on the prosperity gospel. Uh, She was diagnosed with stage four cancer in 2015, and she wrote an op-ed piece just months after receiving the news of her cancer diagnosis, and she pens these wise words. It's a longer quote, so stick with me. The prosperity gospel has taken a religion based on the contemplation of a dying man and stripped it of its call to surrender all. Perhaps worse, it has replaced Christian faith with the most painful forms of certainty. The movement has perfected a rarefied form of America's addiction to self-rule, which denies much of our humanity, our fragile bodies, our finitude, our need to stare down our deaths at least once in a while and be filled with dread and wonder. At some point, we must say to ourselves, I'm, I'm going to need to let go. Friends, we may look at things like manifesting or the prosperity gospel and say it's utter foolishness. But the same soil that produces this, these rotten fruits, it's the same soil that produces our anger when we don't get our way. It's the same soil that produces anxiousness when we think that our plans may not come to fruition as we had hoped. 
It's the same soil that produces our arrogance when our plans don't work out. But real faith in the King Jesus who reigns over all things doesn't seek to gain control, but rather instead is prepared for what we can't control. So, so here's what I, w- I want to do for the remainder of our time. I, I want to present two questions to us with two respective habits for us to ex- consider and explore together as we think about the relationship between our faith and our plans. And the first question is this. What happens when our plans don't work out? What happens when our plans don't work out? Think, think of a time in your life. Think of a, a project, a relationship, um, uh, an assignment, a trip, or whatever it may be. Think of a time in your life where your plans did not come to fruition. How did you respond? What did you feel? Who was God to you in that moment? Where was God? Was God in that moment? When our plans fall apart, we tend to fall in, I'm I'm kind of overgeneralizing here, but we tend to fall into one of two traps, either the trap of anger on one side or anxiousness on the other. And and let me say, it's it's okay to be angry, and, and it's okay in some situations to be anxious. The problem isn't with our emotions per se, but rather what we do with those emotions. I remember hearing someone once say that that worry, worry is the feeling that God won't get it right. And bitterness is the feeling that God got it wrong. Just let that soak in for a few minutes. Just think about that. When When our plans fall apart, we fall into one of two traps of anger or anxiousness. And our emotions, they tell us things, and we should pay attention to them. They are not, the, they're not gospel truth. They don't, they don't speak gospel truth over us, but they can reveal to us what is happening in our lives, minds, and hearts. And if we find ourselves excessively and consistently and compulsively angry or anxious when our plans don't work out, then one thing I want to suggest to us that I think we should counteract that with is the practice and the habit of Sabbath. And, and that, that may sound really kind of like underwhelming, but, but the gift of Sabbath, and, and let me say really quick, this is not a silver bullet remedy, like practice Sabbath for six months and you'll never be angry again. Like that's not what I'm suggesting. And let me also say, I want to recognize, I do know that there is a clinical version of anxiety that needs clinical treatment. There are many kinds of anxiety that we deal with. And so I don't want to minimize that. But at the same time, I don't want to minimize God's good designs for our flourishing. That if we want to live a life that God has designed for our good and our joy, it means living into his patterns and designs that he's given us. And one of those is absolutely the gift of Sabbath. Sabbath, and we've preached on this and taught on this several times, encourage you to go back and and, and find those messages. But, But Sabbath is not just a command, it is a gift for our good. It is not only a way for us to be rejuvenated, Sabbath is also a way in which we practically declare we are not God. When we routinely practice and observe a day of rest on a weekly basis, it it provides guardrails for us and protects us from the belief that we are in control, that we must keep working and accomplishing to validate our significance. But practicing Sabbath is a way that we can routinely say, God, you are in control as I rest as I take a break, as I turn it off. And the more we live into this practice, I believe the less 
angry and anxious we find ourselves when our plans fall apart. Again, Sabbath doesn't guard us from seeing our plans fall apart, but it prepares us to be a people who have a real faith, who are prepared for what we can't control. So what happens when our plans don't work out? The second question, and maybe even more importantly, what happens when our plans do work out? What happens when our plans do work out? Which some of you are like, that's, how is that a question? That's not a problem. They're like, when my plans work out, it's great. But when our plans work out, this is precisely where the temptation for control and the illusion that we have it all is, is its greatest, is its strongest. Our plans working out is fertile soil for the boastful arrogance that James talks about. Look, look with me at verse 16. James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So not only are they arrogant, but there is a boasting in their arrogance. It's this double whammy of a sin. Boasting is described as evil. That's a strong word. It's described as evil because it is a way that our enemy, the devil, whispers into our ear, just as he did to Adam and Eve, and tells us, you can be like God. That's what happens when our plans come together. We, we have a tendency to look at ourselves and kind of, kind of puff up our chest and feel proud of what we've accomplished. And we can hear this whispering temptation that says, you can be like God, which is why James says early in verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If we want to know how to resist the work of temptation from our enemy, it requires us submitting to God as the one who is actually in control of our lives, of our work, of our families, of our relationships. And if that is true, then one of the most loving things that God can do for us is to actually allow our perfectly produced plans that we create without any reference to his authority or wisdom for him to allow those plans to plummet to the ground. I think that can be sometimes one of the most loving things that God can do for us to awaken us to the reality that we are not in control, but he is. And so for some of us, we need to be comforted and we need to be strengthened when our plans don't work out. But for maybe more than we realize, many of us need to be humbled when our plans do work out. And I think the practice that we need as the people of Jesus who live out real faith is the practice of gratitude. Again, maybe over or underwhelming in terms of what this is offering, but I am firmly convinced that boastful arrogance has no room to breathe in a room filled with gratitude. There's no room for boastful arrogance to breathe in a room filled with gratitude. The more grateful we are to God, especially for the little things, for the small things in life, the less likely we are to boast and trust in ourselves. And in many ways, James has already given us this wisdom. Again, if you, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, I mentioned how James kind of, kind of begins the thought and then kind of leaves it and then goes over here and then comes back to it. But in James chapter 1, just flip over one page. James chapter 1, verse 17, we read these words, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Real faith is prepared for what we can't control. And when our plans don't work out, we need to practice Sabbath that says, I am not God, you are. And when our plans do work out, we need to embrace the humble practice of gratitude and thanksgiving to God and praise for how he has worked in our lives. But church, are we a people who cling to Jesus 
more tightly than we do our own plans? Do we have a higher expectation of our capacity to plan and strategize than we do for God to accomplish his will in us and through us? Or are we deceived by the illusion and the delusion of our own control? Again, the wisdom of Dr. Kate Bowler has a word for us in this regard. Listen to what she says here. What would it mean for Christians to give up that little piece of the American dream that says you are limitless? Everything is not possible. The mighty kingdom of God is not yet here. What if rich did not mean wealthy? And what if whole did not mean healed? And what if being the people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? God is here. We are loved. It is enough. Would that be true of us as a church? To find the freedom that comes in realizing that we are not in control. Because church, at the center of our faith is a dying man. At the center of our faith is a dying man who surrendered his will to the will of the Father who boldly and compassionately said, not my will, but yours be done. There was neither arrogance nor anxiousness in his heart, in his mind and body. There was grief. There was pain. There was sorrow. There was suffering. But as he suffered, he entrusted himself to the God who is sovereign over it all to accomplish all that the Father desired for our good and for the glory of Christ Jesus. Church, the reason we can be okay not being in control is because we trust and follow King Jesus, the one who walks straight into death and sin and hell itself, following the will of the Father in order to secure for us our salvation and our eternal place in his forever family. And by entrusting his plans to the will of the Father, he secured our salvation from sin and our citizenship in his kingdom now and forever. Real faith is prepared to trust Jesus with what we can't control. The question is, church, who is in control of your plans? Do you hold to Jesus more tightly than your plans? May we be a church of real faith prepared for what we can't control. Amen?